conviction where needed. And certainly that there would be uh, instruction and uh, correction there. I pray that you would help us to understand and to know these things and to know them well. And, uh, Father, that we may be grounded in these things. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Second uh, Peter chapter number 3. And uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to, I'm going to introduce the uh, message tonight, and then we will look at our text. Um, the last uh, last couple Wednesday nights now, we've been trying to uh, deal with some issues that are misunderstood uh, from Scripture or uh, that a lot of times Christians struggle with, have problems with. Um, we have questions about, maybe we get deceived by some things. And um, one of the topics that I think is very, very important, and I come across so often uh, as a pastor is the number of people that name the name of Christ, that say they're Christians, that trust, uh, they say they trust what the Bible says, but they believe in uh, evolution. And uh, the idea that the creation account is is not um, accurate. Um, in preparing for the message, I, I wanted to find some information as to how... Um, how prevalent this is among God's people. I know from personal experience that uh, hardly a week goes by that I don't talk to somebody that says they're a Christian that um, would have the position that they believe evolution is accurate, that it's true. So I, I found a, a, a survey. It was done in, on February of 2019, so three years ago, almost three years ago. And it was not uh, a survey done to independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James Version Baptists. But uh, they did uh, ask those that claimed to be Protestant. I know we're not Protestant, so before you guys crucify me for grouping us in there, the world does. And for the sake of this particular survey, they grouped our, our folks in this survey. And the question was, uh, how many of them believed in some form of evolution for the for the explanation as to where the world began. Eighty nine percent. That's almost nine out of every ten people that profess to, to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior believe in evolution. And that's problematic uh, because we we base our doctrine, we base our uh, our belief of. Uh, salvation upon the truthfulness of God's Word. And if there is anything in this book that we cannot trust, how can we trust any of it? If there is no faith in what God has said, how can there be faith to trust Him for salvation? I'm not saying that people who believe in evolution are not saved. I find a difficulty, though, in them saying, I have faith to believe this, and then they end up not believing it. Uh, there are basically three main prevalent viewpoints of how the world began that are held by most Christians. Now, there is a fourth one that doesn't deal with uh, evolution. Uh, the first one is what is called, or one that I'm going to deal with probably mostly tonight, because it's the one that is most common for the people who uh, believe evolution among God's people, is what's called the day-age theory, meaning that they believe that the days that are uh, indicated in Genesis 1 
refer to not just a 24-hour period, but ages of time. And probably the one that is the most common one among God's people, and I'll explain why that is here in just a few moments, it would be this one here. There's another one that is called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution uh, does admit that God did create the initial um, base elements, and that then he left them to their own course and they evolved from there. Uh, and so they do at least admit that there is uh, God who did some form of initial creation, but that everything has evolved further from that. That is not quite as popular as it used to be. It used to be back in the 70s and 80s. That was a, a pretty big theory, but they've kind of gotten away from that one to the day-age theory. The, the third one, which is the position we would hold, which is called the young earth creation, uh, which is biblical, by the way. Uh, we believe that the Bible tells us exactly and literally what took place on six literal 24-hour days of creation. Uh, and so we hold to that. There is a fourth thought out there that doesn't deal so much with evolution, but is something that I will deal with in another message like this and uh, that I'm also amazed at how many people hold to, and that is the gap theory. It's called the gap theory. And I will deal with that one uh, later uh, in another message because that's really kind of a message unto its own. Uh, but mainly these three areas of evolution, uh, that uh, two of them about evolution, one, of course, being the biblical account of creation. And you go around, and, and out of these group of people, the 89 or so percent would hold usually to one of those two theories of evolution, either the day-age theory or the theistic evolution. Now, the theistic evolution does not have a whole lot of biblical support. Uh, the day-age, there are verses that people will use from Scripture. And I've said this so often before in teaching some things from, from the Bible. The most important thing in understanding Scripture is uh, context. The second most important thing in understanding Scripture is context. And the third most important thing, you want to take a guess what it is? Context. We cannot, must not take verses of Scripture out of what they're intended to be. When we do that, we misunderstand or misapply what is being said in the verse. And oftentimes, is not even close to what the verse is actually trying to deal with. So not only are we wrong about what the verse is teaching, but we also miss out on the truth that it does teach. Very, very important that we understand these things. There are two main questions that oftentimes are asked by people that are Christians, that, that name the name of Christ, and say, yes, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. Uh, I'm going to use that term generically tonight as Christians, because not all of them that claim to be Christians are, so I'm going to use that term uh, generically and not have to explain it every time. So I, when I use that word, Christians, in that format, uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But there's two, two questions that are basic uh, to these folks that believe some sort of evolution has happened. The first one is, can we harmonize the Bible and science? And so their attempt is, we want to try to find some way that we can bring them into agreement. And so one of the questions they ask is, can we do it? Uh, the second question that they ask often is, how can we harmonize the Bible and science? Uh, I want to submit to you tonight, they're asking the wrong question. The question really ought to be, should we be trying 
to harmonize the Bible and science? The answer to that is no, we should not. They're, they're two completely different elements. One is absolute truth. One is theoretical. One is given by God. The other is derived from man's thinking. Can I tell you this? Any time I have to make a decision about what to believe, and it boils down to what God has said and what man thinks... <laughs> I mean, it's almost laughable, but it isn't, because the truth is, so many, at least 89%, are saying, I would rather have my faith in what man has derived and come up with than what God has said. The truth is, the Bible tells us, let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter what science may try to say if it is contrary to Scripture. Now, I'll tell you several reasons why I'm going to deal with this subject tonight. First of all is... Uh, it's amazing to me how many people I talk to that will make com- that that are Christians that that say yes I'm saved I know I'm saved I'm on my way to heaven. It's amazing to me how many of them will somewhere in the course of general conversation refer to uh, something about evolution and the idea is they they believe it to be true and uh, it's probably one of the least uh, it's kind of like people who voted for. Uh, our, our current president. They, they, they voted for him, but they don't like to admit it. Uh, so you don't hear a lot of them saying they did. Uh, a lot of Christians believe in evolution. They really do in their hearts. They hold to it. They think it's true. But they don't like to admit it because they don't want to be ostracized. But the truth is, they, a lot of them do. Um, but the, um, uh, the, so one of the big reasons that I'm, I'm dealing with this is because there are so many uh, that, that hold to this view. Uh, and, and but the other thing is this: uh, we need to understand that we do not need to prove the Bible. The Bible does not need its own proof. It, it, it is its own truth. We hold to the Bible not because science supports it. We hold to the Bible because God said it, and that's the only reason. As a Christian, I mean, it, it, think about this: it, it, it really doesn't hold any water to say. I have faith to trust Christ with my eternal soul for my eternal destination, and I can't believe what he said about creation in the Bible. That doesn't make any sense to me. How can we have that great a faith to trust him with something that is so valuable to us and yet not, get, and yet not trust him when he talks about the idea of creation? So the question is the wrong question, people that are asking this. It's the wrong question. Let's look in Second Peter chapter number 3. And I'm going to use one of the verses tonight, and I want to make sure that we clearly teach it this evening. So that when somebody comes to you and says, this is how we get science and the Bible to agree, and they pull this verse out, and they will, you'll be able to say, that's not what this verse is teaching. Alright, so what we want to do is rightly divide this particular passage tonight. Second Peter chapter 3, let's look in verse number 8. The Bible says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. They will almost always take you to this verse and say, well, see here, this is where we can say, okay, the Bible does agree with science. No, the truth is it doesn't, because we're taking this verse to mean something that was never intended to mean. And even if we did, let's, let's, let's just... Play uh, for a minute. Let's just say that, that, that this was dealing with this. A day was how much? According to this, it was as what? A thousand years, not millions of years. 
And notice it doesn't say a day is a thousand years. It says it's as a million years. There's a comparison here and a thousand years as a day. Uh, and there, there's a comparison here that's given. And it's given for a reason. Uh, there is a, uh, by, 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 uh, by coming to this, this belief of evolution. And by the way, I'm, I don't mean to, to preach tonight on secular uh, education, but I have preached on it uh, exhaustively before in our church. Uh, folks, if we don't understand tonight that secular education is nothing more than an indoctrination machine, then we are vastly mistaken tonight. They are out for the hearts and the minds, and I'll tell you this, the souls of our young people. They just are. Uh, there are people that would argue with me on that, including some of my own family, but I will hold to that till the day I die. I cannot be persuaded any other way than this, that they do nothing more than indoctrinate. And where a lot of this comes from is the fact that even though they were raised in church, even though they may have had godly families and parents, they go to colleges and they hear these, these men with degrees behind their names. They're supposed to have authority. They're supposed to have education. They're supposed to have knowledge. And they hear them get up and teach something that is wrong and it is false. They have a flawed premise to begin with. Uh, they begin with the idea that science is the supreme truth. Uh, can I tell you this? I, uh, I brought a couple of uh, books, textbooks here. This one is called Science, Matter, and Energy. Uh, this science book is actually done by Abeka, and it's a Christian science book. You say, aha, truth is in that book. Can I tell you this? They did not, they, man did, or God did not inspire this book. Truth is in this book. And if this book differs from this book, I don't care if it's Abeka or not, guess which one's wrong? This one here. This is what's so appalling to me is how many times uh, God's people will say, they, they start with the premise that this is fact, that this is truth, and we got to see if we can make it line up with Scripture. Uh, here's another one, biology. That's a big one. That kind of deals with this subject a little bit. And again, people will put their faith in a book that man wrote. And they would rather trust that book and say the Bible is wrong, we've got to make the Bible fit this, than to say we believe the Bible to be true, and if anything, they need to revise this to be in agreement with this. And that ought to be the way it ought to be. Let's look again here now in Second Peter chapter number 3 for a moment. And I want to start with this. They begin with a flawed premise. Uh, in Forbes, which is not an independent fundamental Baptist publication, by the way, in case you didn't know that, uh, they are a secular uh, uh, source of knowledge. Uh, in 20, November 2017, uh, a man by the name of Ethan Siegel wrote this. He said, "You now this is Forbes speaking, and I'm not, I'm not saying they're an authority, but I will say that even the world is beginning to see some things that we as, as God's people should have already known all along the way. He says, you've heard of our greatest scientific theories, the theory of evolution, the Big Bang theory, the theory of gravity. You've also heard of the concept of a proof and the claims that certain pieces of evidence prove the validities of these theories. Fossils, genetic inheritance, DNA, prove the theory of evolution. He said, that's what you've heard. 
the Hubble expansion of the universe, the evolution of stars, galaxies, heavy elements, and the existence of the cosmic microwave background prove the Big Bang Theory and falling objects, uh, GPS clocks, planetary motion, deflection of starlight, prove the theory of gravity. He said, this is what you've heard. And this is what he says. Except, that's a complete lie. <laughs> While they provide evidence, they are not proof. In fact, when it comes to science, proving anything is an impossibility. Now, this is an unsaved man for all I know. He, 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 at the end of the article, he still says, but, but these theories are the best we have, let's believe them. So he comes up with the wrong conclusion. But he does make a statement here that I agree with. And that is this, that you cannot, it's impossible to prove these things. There is facts, there are things you can measure, but at the end of the day, our conclusions will always be tainted by our fallible minds, our worldview, and our view of Scripture. They will always be skewed by those things. They'll be influenced by them. He went on to say this, even if the universe were not subject to the fundamental quantum rules that govern it, it would be impossible to measure every state of every particle under every condition all the time. He said at some point we have to extrapolate the information, which is what they've done. He says in science, at its best, the process is very similar. You, have, you never know when your postulates, rules, or logical steps will suddenly cease to describe the universe. You never know when your assumptions will suddenly become invalid, and you never know whether the rules you successfully applied for situations A, B, and C will also successfully apply to situation D. Therefore, it is a leap of faith. I'm glad he said it. It is a leap of faith to assume that it will. And while these are often good leaps of faith, which is where he's leading to holding to these other things, he says you cannot prove that these leaps are valid. If the laws of nature change over time or behave differently under different conditions or in different directions or locations or aren't applicable to the system you're dealing with, your predictions will be wrong. Why would we put faith in something that could be wrong and more than likely is and say that we would rather trust this and try to make our Bibles fit this? And yet we do. We'll take a verse like Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8. And we'll say, ah, we've got the answer. I've gone to school. I've gone to college. I've got the decree. I've got the diploma hanging on my wall. And I am are an educated person. And I, I, they learned me good at that higher learning place. And I've got the answers. It doesn't agree with the Bible, so I'm going to have to find out how to make my Bible understand this. And that's where we start from. They have a wrong premise. That will lead them to a, a, a misdirected faith. Because they began with the wrong premise, and that is that the truth is in the science books. Then that leads them to misdirected faith. They put their faith now in the science book and not in the Bible. If they have misdirected faith and it goes unchecked, it will cause them to come to a contaminated conclusion. It's a flawed conclusion. I've shared the illustration years ago of the kid who did a science fair project and trained a flea to jump over a pencil every time he said the word hup. And uh, he wanted to find out how well this flea would do, and so he pulled off his front two legs and set him down on the table and said hup, and he jumped over the pencil. He pulled off the next two legs and said, Hup, he jumped over the pencil. A third time, he pulled the last two legs the flea had 
off of him, set him on the table and said, Hup, and he didn't jump over the pencil this time. So when he wrote his project, he said, when a flea loses his last two legs, he becomes deaf. Now, we chuckle at that, but here's that literally happens in science. Great observation, measurable evidence, but a tainted conclusion. Why? Because their faith is misplaced. So they start with a flawed premise. They, mis- they have misdirected faith because of that. They have a contaminated conclusion. And as a result of that, that's going to lead them to holding to a false source of truth. Can I tell you, there is only one source in this world of absolute truth. We hold it in our laps tonight. I hope you do. That is the Word of God. It is infallible. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is preserved. It is pure. And you can rest assured it says what it means and means what it says, and there is no problem with it. Do we need to make science and the Bible agree? I couldn't care less if science agrees with my Bible. I believe the Bible. And as God's people, that's where we need to be. If science doesn't agree with it, then science hasn't caught up yet. It just hasn't. Let's take a look at this, and let's see. I want to make sure we understand what this verse is teaching tonight, and that's really the the purpose of this lesson. I I needed to lay the foundation, the kind of the background of why we're dealing with this. But in verse number 8, he says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And if you're not careful, somebody's going to take that uh, out of context, and they're going to say, Ha-ha, here it is. Let's go back to the very beginning of the chapter, and uh, let's, let's look at the context, shall we? The context is usually found in the surrounding verses. Peter begins this portion of his letter with this particular paragraph. He begins this by saying, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, he says, first of all, what I'm getting ready to tell you, I'm telling you to help you remember something that was already previously known and already previously understood. He's not doing this to establish a new truth. He's not doing this to clarify something that was in in uh, misconstrued or misunderstood. He's doing it by way of remembrance. He wants to remind them of some things. And let's look at verse number 3. He said, So he begins now to remind them, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? That's the question that is asked in this chapter. Where is the promise of His coming? What is the coming of Christ and the events following that referred to? We call those the end times, don't we? Would you agree with me on that? His coming at this point. I mean, He's already ascended back to heaven. So the next time He comes, it's the rapture, the tribulation, millennial reign, and the end time events, correct? So He's saying there are going to come some scoffers. And there were already at this time, and He's trying to help them so that they know. Listen, there's going to be some questioning of you about this issue. They're going to say, where is the promise of His coming? Now, if you remember, the apostles have been preaching. He's coming again. He's coming again. It's going to be soon. It's going to be imminent. 
And scoffers come around and they say, okay, you said that, where is he? This is the question that's being asked and the one he's addressing here. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This again is still the scoffers. For this, they, I love this word, this phrase, they willingly are ignorant. Not just ignorant, they do so willingly. They want to be ignorant of this. For this they, are willi- they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So let's look at verse 5 and 6 a minute. And he said, listen, there's going to be some scoffers. They're going to question and say, where is the coming of the Lord? He said, listen, they're willingly ignorant. They don't remember that when God said He created the world, He created the world. And when He said He was going to flood the world and judge them by water, guess what happened? He flooded the world and it was judged by water. In other words, what God says, He means, and it is going to come to pass. This is what Peter's trying to remind these people. He said, there's going to be people questioning you, where is the coming of the Lord? Where, where is He? And we think, we think it's been this way since the beginning of time. And, and we're sitting here 2,000 plus years later. And there are certainly many scoffers saying, where is the coming of Christ? It's been 2,000 years. I don't think He's coming. So Peter is giving us this passage to help us. He said, rest assured, as sure as he spoke and he created the world, as sure as he declared judgment with the flood and those two events happened, he said, you can rest assured the rest of what God says is going to happen. Let's look and see what he says here. Verse 6, whereby the world that was then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word... Okay, which word is he referring to? The word that created the world, and it happened. The word that created or pronounced judgment in the flood, and it happened. He said the world that we're now living in, by the same word, in other words, from the same source here, it's still God's word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We are living, this 2,000 plus years now since Christ died on the cross, we are living in a period of God's grace. I know we call it, well, we're in the dispensation of grace. No, we're living in a time clock that we don't know when the end of it's going to be. But all of this time that we're living in today is grace that God is extending to man. Why? Why is He extending? Well, Peter tells us. Notice what he says here. He, he says this: the world that now is, uh, by the same word, same word of God, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Within the context, he's trying to say, listen, yes, we've been saying His, imminent, his coming is imminent. Yes, we've been saying it's, it's soon. But it's in God's timing, not yours. And He is in absolute control of when He comes and when He doesn't come. Not you. That's what that verse means. It does not mean that He spent a thousand years doing the events of creation day one. Make sure we know the context. He goes on, you say, well, how do you know that that verse 8 is not switching gears and starting to deal with this? Let's look in verse number 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. So he's back to this issue. You can trust the Word of the Lord. As much as He said He created the world and it happened, as much as He declared judgment on the flood and it happened, He said by that same Word, it's going to happen. It's going to come. He's holding us in store right now, reserved unto fire in the day of judgment. That day is coming. The Lord is not slack, verse number 9, concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. There again, there's the questioning of man about God's promise, isn't there? The Lord is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slackness. In other words, we would look at it and say, or in our flesh, the man, man would look at it and say, well, God's, God's not coming back. He said He would. He's not. Where is He at? That's the scoffers that are willingly ignorant. But is, look at this, verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering to usward. That's in the context of the passage, is it not? The entirety of this chapter is dealing with the long-sufferingness of God's grace in this present time until His return. That's what the entirety of this chapter is dealing with, including verse number 8. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should what? Perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why? is a day with the Lord is a thousand years right now. And a thousand years is a day. Because He's being gracious. He does not want anyone to have to go through His judgment. God takes no pleasure in His judgment. He does it because He's just. He does it because He's right and He's holy. But you can rest assured, God is not gleeful or joyful over His judgment of man. So much so that he has prolonged this period of time. It's within his hands to determine when he's coming back and when he's not. He does this for the purpose of extending grace and to give every affordable opportunity for men to come back to him. We are more and more waxing worse and worse in our hearts as a society. More men are rejecting God it's sad when the world rejects God, but when 89% of those who claim to know Christ say, I don't trust Him, there's a problem. Notice, and we often use this verse, don't we? We use this verse and we apply it to every promise God ever made. Which, by the way, you could. It's not what it's intended for, but it is a truth that you could have probably applied to other places. But he's not slack concerning his promise. What promise is he dealing with? His promise to come again and to bring judgment to the world. That's the promise he's dealing with. But as long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. You can rest assured. This is again, Peter's doing this for for what purpose? By way of remembrance, right? He's reminding them of something that was already known and understood previously, that had been stated by the apostles and by even Christ Himself. He says, The day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye be in holy conversation and godliness? Now, I'm going to give you a few things. Bear with me. I'll be out of here in no more than at least an hour. Okay? No, we will be out of here soon. So, so knowing this, 
context. There are some things that Peter ends with here. In light of this, are there some things that we can leave this building tonight having gained in our own personal lives? The answer to that, of course, is yes. Because he says, knowing these things. Look in verse number 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ye ought be in all what? Holy conversation and godliness. I said as we began the study of Revelation, one of the big reasons that we study end-time events is not just for the knowledge of it, but to motivate us to live the way that we should live. His return is imminent, and it is uncertain when it's going to happen. In light of that, and this is what Peter is saying, seeing then that all these things are going to happen that God said He was going to do, He said you need to understand what manner of persons you ought to be in holy conversation, that's dealing with our life, not just what we say out of our mouth, it's dealing with the way we live, holy conversation and godliness. Verses 12 and 13 says this, that we are to be looking, because we know these things, he says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his what? Promise. Look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We're not like the scoffers who are willingly ignorant. We are trusting God at His Word. And if the day seems to be like it's a thousand years away, and if the thousand years seems to be like a day away, that's for God to determine, not us. What we're to do is to be holy in our conversation and in godliness, and we are to be looking for the day of His return. Also in verse number 14, He says, Nevertheless, we according to His promise look for a new heavens and a new... Uh, I'm sorry, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be what? Diligent. Now, He doesn't tell us right there where, where we're supposed to be diligent, but He does in the next phrase. That ye may be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. These are the three areas we are to apply our diligence to. That we may be found of Him in peace. Their songwriter wrote years ago, Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Do we have a clean record? We used to sing that old, uh, I think it was an old four-part harmony song, The Old Account Was Settled Long Ago. And I heard an old preacher say one time, We need to keep short accounts with God. Are we at peace with Him? Seeing we know these things, we hold fast to them. We're to be in peace with God. We're to be without spot. This is what we're to be diligent in. You say, well, in the day we live, I just I don't even think we can even do it, so why even try? We are to live without spot in this world. Peter says, you know this. I'm telling you this by way of remembrance. You're to be without spot. And then he goes on to say, and blameless. Now notice, he does not say that we are going to succeed at these things. He said we're to be diligent towards them. Because he understands that as, he's not speaking of sinless perfection. He's speaking of our heart and our effort towards these things. He tells us to be diligent in them. Notice verse number 16. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, verse number 15. And uh I'm going to skip verse 15 and 16 come back to him here in just a second. Let's look at verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware 
So this is the last thing he tells us to do. First, he says we need to uh, be, have holy conversation and godliness. He tells us we're to be looking for the day of the Lord. He tells us to be diligent in, uh, to have peace with God and without spot and blameless. And then verse 17, he gives us one final thing. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also be being led away with the error of the wicked. Fall from your own steadfastness. Boy, can we see the context here? He said there are going to be scoffers that are going to doubt God's Word. They're going to say, everything is, since the fathers fell asleep, everything's just maintained the same. There is no difference. He said, but rest assured, the Word that created creation, the Word that brought the flood, is the same Word that has promised that these things will happen. He tells us, seeing you know these things, Beware lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked. Fall from your own steadfastness. Can I tell you this? I am appalled at how many people believe evolution. I'm appalled at how many people will use this passage to try to justify science in the Bible. And when I look at verse number 17, my thought is this. They have been led away with the error of the wicked one. Or the wicked and they have fallen from their own steadfastness. Why? Because they did not study the passage to know what the context was. And as a result, they had a false premise that led to a false faith, gave them a wrong conclusion, and caused them to have a wrong source of truth. He tells us then in verse number 18, "...but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Since we know these things, these are the things we ought to be doing. Have holy conversation and godliness. We need to be looking for His coming. We need to be diligent to be in peace with God without spot and blameless. We need to beware lest we're led away of the wicked and fall of our own, from our own steadfastness in these things. And we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 and 16, he reiterates or kind of sums up what the entirety of the chapter is. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That's what God's goal is in waiting. Even of our beloved brother Paul, who according, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, under their own what? Destruction. Let's not be these unlearned folks. Let's make sure that we know. When you talk to a friend of yours that is a Christian that says, I believe evolution, or I believe theistic evolution, or I believe day-age theory, and they want to bring you to this passage, make sure we know it. Make sure that we can explain to them what the purpose of verse number 8 is. It is not to explain away creation. It is to express to us the grace that God is extending in this present day. All right? Hope that helps. Uh, let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message and the time that we spend around your word. May we, may we begin our, our faith being established on your word alone. And then, Father, anything else